Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion, episode 23. You may hear some building noises in the background, so I apologize for that in advance. You just can't control when your whole front garden's going to be landscaped, apparently. So today's the day. This is our second episode for the year. And last episode, B rode the train solo and interviewed Rhea Dempsey, which episode 22, if you haven't already heard that. And this week, I'm back on board and we have two guests today and and they're going to add weight to the discussion we're having today on the topic of obstetric violence, birth trauma and birth trauma prevention and recovery. So you'll have already heard from our first guest, Dr. Hazel Keedle, who was here in episode seven for our birth after cesarean episode. And Hazel is the lead researcher on the BEST study, which is being done through Western Sydney University. And they've just released their first paper from the BEST study called Dehumanised, Violated and Powerless. And it's an Australian study of women's experiences of obstetric violence in the past five years. And Hazel, mate, I've read it and it's exceptional writing. And if anyone wants to read the paper, it's open access, which means that the university has paid to make that accessible to everybody if you googled that paper but we'll also put it in the resource folder for the great birth rebellion for anyone who's on the mailing list for this podcast you get access to all of the resources from all the episodes so we'll put the paper in there we've also got amber lee buendicho and amber this is the first time we've met so can you introduce yourself and let us know what your where your expertise lies in this area of obstetric violence and birth trauma Sure. I um, I have two children, two-year-old and four-year-old. He just started kindy today, so I have like all the feels this morning. Um, but my background is in psychology. I've just completed my psycho- psychology honours and I am got into a master's program this year, so I'm excited to get onto that. I have an interest in matrescence, motherhood, birth trauma. I had hyperemesis pregnancies. I had birth trauma and all of the things that come with that in postpartum. So uh, this is I love doing this and it completely changed the trajectory of my entire life. And I've then gone on to do further study in matrescence and perinatal mental health and things as well. And yeah. Amazing. Well, we're going to kick off and just, we're going to jump right in. And I want to first talk about this definition of, of what is obstetric violence? Because I feel like it's a newer term to me in the birth world and potentially even newer to people out there listening to this episode. So maybe, Hazel, could we start with you? I guess how did you guys define or explain what obstetric violence is in the BEST study and what came out from women when they explained what their impression of obstetric violence is? Okay, so obstetric violence isn't a new term in the international sphere. It's actually recognised by the United Nations as a form of gendered violence. And it first came in in South America, in Argentina and there and Venezuela in 2007 in the organic law on the right of women for a life free of violence. And they defined obstetric violence as the experience in childbirth, which becomes dehumanising physically and or mentally abusive and intrusive. Um, So... 
yeah, it, it actually is quite recognised over there. They've actually got legislation against obstetric violence in seven of the 11 Latin American countries. Um, and then it kind of stops. It didn't kind of really go anywhere else. In There has been research done in, through Africa and through Asia on obstetric violence. But interestingly, there wasn't really anything done in high-income countries. It was almost as if, you know, it happens over there and we don't have that here. So our study was the first one that actually looked at it in a high-income country and, and looking at it in Australia. So we put the question in, did you experience obstetric violence? And we did put the definition in there about dehumanising treatment towards you or your reproductive choices because we, we put a definition just in case women weren't aware of what that meant. And then there were three options, a yes, maybe, and a no. And we put the maybe in there just in case women weren't sure whether they um, had experienced it or not. And then they had the option if they had yes or maybe they had the option to leave a comment. So then we had the we were then able to do an analysis on all of those comments, six hundred and twenty eight maybe it was around six hundred and something. And uh, those comments then helped us understand what obstetric violence was from the woman's perspective, rather than us just saying this is what violence is and this is what you experience. Actually, getting it from the woman's perspective, which is where we got the dehumanization, the powerlessness, and the violation from. And does, you know, we're talking about childbirth here, but straight away what comes to mind is what often happens for women in postpartum, which particularly around breastfeeding. You know, I just did a deep birth debrief before I came to this chat this morning and the person was, you know, detailing, you know, people holding her breast when she didn't want them to and shoving the baby onto the breast as well. Was any of that kind of mentioned, like that early postpartum space or was it re- is it really just kind of defined in, in giving labour and giving birth? Well, what we can tell from the comments is that it isn't just about the childbirth or or, or labour and birth. It actually goes through pregnancy, uh, which could be a, um, a violation of a internal examination during pregnancy or a rough examination or even just being dehumanised um, or having all your power taken away. There were also examples. And then all the way through to the postpartum period as well. In the big category, the main category of I felt violated, there was a subcategory about um, physical abuse. And that included grabbing your breasts, um, really rough fundal examinations after the baby's been born. Yeah, so definitely that breastfeeding uh, and the and the grabbing is certainly came up in the in the descriptions. So Hazel, can you? I'm just realizing maybe ahead of time we need to have told people about the best study, the best study. That, so um, so Hazel, can you tell us what the the best study is because this this paper of obstetric violence is only a really small kind of section from what from what you asked about and what you discovered. So what's yep. the best study? And then this is and then obstetric violence seems to have been the first topic that you've picked out to write on. Sure. So the Australian Birth Experience Study or BEST is um, a very large survey that we did, and it was co-designed, which means that we put it out there at the beginning and asked maternity and consumer organisations if they would be part of um, of the co-design group. And we had representatives from 10 uh, consumer and professional organisations join a consumer reference group. Now, I state that because that's really important and it's actually where the obstetric violence stuff came from because they helped us design the survey and put together the questions and they asked for the question on obstetric violence to go in there. So that's what we did. We then designed the survey and went out online. Um, So it was a cross-sectional survey across Australia 
and it was open for um, March to November 2021 and it asked women who'd had a baby in the previous five years to answer the survey and it had questions all the way from pregnancy, labour and birth and the postnatal period. So we've got lots of little offshoots that we can look at and we are looking at. I will just add, we did have one extra paper come out beforehand, before the obstetric violence one, and it's a little bit offbeat, but actually it's a really important paper and we should put the link in um, in your uh, newsletter because it's to do with birth trauma. So part of our um, ethics and when we're putting together our research team is we involved a research poet and she's a published poet and local um, to here in the Blue Mountains who also has been a consumer and a birth advocate in her past and uh, she did a process called Poetry Inquiry and found poetry so she actually had access to the woman's words and then she created poems from them and they're really powerful and then together we wrote this really awesome paper about the poems to do with birth to do with birth trauma that she created, and we actually published that, and that came out I think in last March. And uh, it's a little bit out there, so it doesn't get a lot of press, but it's really interesting. And I think reading birth trauma through and obstetric violence through a poem is really quite powerful. So, um, so yeah, so that was our first one. Then, uh, for the analysis point of view. Because we never asked about obstetric violence in any other survey before, I was kind of interested, you know, did women even answer this question? And when there, I saw that there were over 600 comments and I started reading them, then I realised this really had to get out first. We had to focus on this. All the other stuff we're looking at now but um, and we've been looking at since, but we had to get these voices out there because they were so harrowing and they were, you know, women voluntarily gave that information and just ripped open their wounds and wrote them down and then just got up and carried on with their lives again. And, and I felt a lot of responsibility to be able to get that story out there, which is why we focus on obstetric violence first. And you guys found that one in 10 women in the BEST study reported being the victims of obstetric violence. And then we know from other research, and I assume it was similar in the women that you surveyed, that one in three women will come out of their birth experience, roughly one in three women will come out of their birth experience with a level of trauma. Yes, so one in 10, um, and that included the yes and maybes, but when we we could kind of triangulate that back because we did actually review those comments and those comments added to that. So yeah, we had one in 10 women um, say yes or maybe to obstetric violence and then 600, maybe it was 626 women actually wrote their stories. So that actually left about 300 women that couldn't even, didn't feel that they could write their stories down. And so I think they're the important voices. They couldn't share their voice. So this is also for them. And then what we did also ask the question on birth trauma and ours is sitting around 28%, 29% saying yes to birth trauma. The way that I see it, and it'd be interesting to see if Amberlee thinks the same, is that birth trauma is like an umbrella term. Um, and in that traumatic birthing experience, you can have the physical trauma, the psychological trauma, um, the fear of death for yourself, for your baby. A lot of things can go into that. And part of that under that umbrella is obstetric violence. But I think it's a particularly pervasive and damaging one because with obstetric violence comes the fact that you have been violated, that you have you've had all your trust from that healthcare provider broken. So it kind of leaks into all of them. But birth trauma is a bigger umbrella. And then obstetric violence fits underneath that. 
I'd almost say with birth trauma, sometimes it can be a bit of an exclusive umbrella though. The theme I kind of get is that people don't feel valid, don't, don't feel valid in having the trauma. So they will say, I don't think it was traumatic, but, you know, and so there's almost like this because trauma in our culture is seen as this really strong word. And, you know, I would, I would argue that the rates are so much higher, but women feel bad in, you know, quotation marks there because their baby's alive or they didn't come out with a third degree tear or they didn't have whatever in their mind is the classification of birth trauma. They didn't have that. So therefore they're okay because all of our understanding of birth trauma is going to be different. People's understanding is going to be different. And so some people only see it as if your baby dies or some people only see it as if you have an emergency situation. And so they go, oh, that's not me. But from my work and the people that come to me to have a birth debrief. I mean, I would argue that every single person needs a birth debrief because birth is transformative and there is always going to be bits in that birth that hold a lot of feelings. And, you know, trauma is not what happens to us. It's what happens inside of us as a response to that. And I think so much happens inside of us in response to pregnancy and in response to conception, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, that I don't think anyone walks away without some form of trauma. And so I, you know, I can really see that that umbrella can be exclusive because people go, oh, no, 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 I don't have that. And so because I don't have that, then I'm not worthy of having the debrief. When I just want to say if anyone's listening to this and everyone is worthy of a debrief, and I think that is something that our maternity care system fails really badly at you know it's important that we have labels and we classify and we have statistics for it because that's how we drive change but I think so many people don't feel like they fit under that umbrella and so we also normalize the language of negative birth don't we you know say well you know you're you're just expected for it to be like that or or the old Mm -hmm. um and I I think it's still used today really you know you leave you leave your dignity at the door well why yeah or at least you've got a healthy at baby. Least you've got a you healthy know? baby. So they're then so, gaslighted. But even, yeah. even when they go to professionals and ask for help, they can be told, well, you know, it's you just in your head. So it, it's yeah. okay. So it it it's one thing for us to even talk about birth trauma and obstetric violence. Um, but it's not a recognized term. So that means, of course, there's going to be so many more women that don't feel that they fit underneath that umbrella because it's just been normalized for them. It's, you know, you're expected to, to have this bad experience. You know, this is, this is the price you pay to be a mother. But really, when you have seen birth be the opposite and you've Ooh. seen birth be empowering and amazing and healing, well, that's when you know that birth trauma isn't normal and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be recognized as that. It shouldn't be downplayed. We actually need to, we actually need to identify it. And most definitely, I think the one in 10 women experiencing obstetric violence is higher. But it's the first time we've done the survey asking that question without any media, without any talk about it. So when we repeat the birth experience study, mm. which we will be doing, um, then potentially we might see an increase in those rates if women are actually identifying to it, or maybe a decrease if we're actually getting some initiatives in there to try and prevent it, which would be let's, ideal. Let's hope the later, because I mean, it's heartbreaking to hear that one in three, but you know, 
we, I think we all know that it's much more than that. And that's, I mean, that's why Mel and I are here with this podcast because we want to change that. We started this podcast saying the biggest myth or misconception in our world is that childbirth is this really dangerous event that we need to fear. And, you know, would add to that saying that it's meant to be this really negative experience because it's not. It's actually chemically designed to be the greatest event and feel like the most euphoric event we ever get to experience. And I think that's why any of us in that work in physiological birth are so passionate about it, especially if we've experienced it, because we know what people have been robbed of. Like I've experienced it twice. I know what you're missing out on. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's what drives us because you don't, nothing compares to that ever in life. And to have that taken away is one thing, but then to have that taken away and replaced with violence or, de, you know, a dehumanising event, it's just not acceptable. I think it's also a reason why we have so many midwives who've been at home births or have been home birth midwives that go into the research space as well because we we've seen that we've seen how how empowering it can be and have witnessed that and then want want to really highlight what other women are missing. Um, Amber, do you, do you have anything to add to the to that? Um, did anything come to mind during that trauma discussion? I had a few things come to mind and particularly. Well, in both of those things, because I, this, so when my supervisor came to me and said, go and find a gap in the research, I went, okay. And when I was reading about birth trauma and particularly birth debriefing, we were excluding women with birth trauma, because if you didn't meet the criteria for PTSD, you did not have birth trauma. And I was like, hold on a second. That's not right. And so traditionally, I think we associate trauma with post-traumatic stress disorder but what's interesting is you can have post-traumatic stress symptoms, but not necessarily meet the criteria. So does that mean those women aren't traumatized? So these are the questions I had anyway. And then on top of that, I thought, okay, so with what you were saying about routine birth debriefing, B, I, so they used to do routine birth debriefing back in the 90s and they had all this research around it. Um, and, you know, is it effective? Is it not effective? But they only used women who had PTSD and it was not effective for those women because one of the symptoms of PTSD is avoidance. So these women did not want to be reliving and revisiting their birth experiences in that moment up to six weeks after birth. They had not even had time. They're completely traumatized. You know, they talk about PTSD being an injury on the brain. Yeah, A, a debrief is not going to help those women in that specific moment. What they did find in that PTSD research was when the woman who has PTSD comes forward and says, I'm now ready to talk about my birth experience, birth debriefing is amazing. So what I was like, okay, here we go. Now we're starting to see a bigger picture around this because women do want to talk about their birth experiences, but it needs to be woman-led. So routine debriefing, I would not recommend. Um, however, having open discussions about the fact that debriefing can be an opportunity for you when you are ready, that needs to happen and that is not happening. Anyone can come to me at any time to have their birth debriefs. And what I do find is, you know, it's one to two years. It's typically around that first birthday or when they're wanting to have another baby. And then I've had women that are like, oh, my birth was 10 years ago. It's like, great, come to me. And, you know, as a midwife, so often, and so many midwives listening to this will be nodding their heads, you go in to work with a woman and it's her mother in the birth space that needs, that still has never debriefed, right? Because most women, you know, our mothers and our grandmothers' generation, they take those stories with them to their grave. And that's why I'm everyone 
you know, deserves the opportunity to have their stories heard. And when you don't, that's when it comes up. And so, you know, there's the mother in the birth space and all of a sudden all her trauma is relived. And you as a midwife are trying to help this mother whilst helping her daughter birth her baby. And so I guess for me, you know, and, and it can be a process because it it's what often happens is the birth then moves into motherhood. And so it's not just the birth that they're debriefing, it's that whole postpartum. Mm. So I would just love for it to be free. So if the government's listening, feel free to pay me <laughs> millions of dollars and I'll set it up because it's what needs to happen. Or well, if I can add one more thing as well, mm. trauma comes down to psychological safety. I think that's when we talk about that umbrella, that's what we're talking about. So, you know, one woman could go through the the exact same event and not feel traumatized. And then another woman can and feel completely traumatized. What are the differences there? It's them as the, as the individual and their perception, some people don't love, but it's their perception of psychological safety. Were they safe in those moments? And there are so many layers to an individual that make up who they are So, and you as a midwife may not know that, or an obstetrician may not know that coming into the birth space, particularly if it's not a continuative care model. So I think that that's a really important factor when we're talking about birth trauma. Totally. Like it's, some people will look at trauma as being, oh, that's because something really unexpected happened and they got sick and their baby got sick, but it's, it's almost, it's almost not that at all. And when um, I, I remember reading, Rachel Reed wrote a paper about women's experience, how they describe their birth trauma and of the one-third of women who experienced birth trauma two-thirds of those women specifically related to the interactions that they had with their care providers and so there was only one-third of women of the one-third of women who were traumatized are actually traumatized by a particular event or physically traumatized you know by something that happened uh, at their birth so we as care providers have a massive opportunity to to solve a lot of the birth trauma problems, a lot of the experiences that women are having are actually because of their interactions with their healthcare provider. And that's the crux of, of, of sexual violence <laughs> because that is done by the healthcare provider, whether that is by verbal or whether that's emotional or whether it's coercive control or whether it's down to physical or sexual violence. That all comes down. Even the act of doing a vaginal examination whether or not it can be a sexual assault or a respectful, consented internal procedure, that there's a little bit of a difference there because there, is, there are certain things that the healthcare provider is doing at that point that is then relating, is then being experienced by the woman. And that comes down to the healthcare provider. They can actually make that such a, 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 a traumatic experience or a routine respectful experience and I think when we're looking at obstetric violence we have to then really be mindful of what's the flip side of that and the flip side or the remedy for that is respectful maternity care so that does come down to the healthcare provider to just to think am I being respectful in the way that I'm treating this woman or actually could this be seen as 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 obstetric violence and vaginal examinations are one that people don't like to talk about um, and it hasn't really been discussed in the in the obstetric violence literature until we just said that we would and uh, but actually I think it's one that really identifies the power and the violence that can come into a what is written in policy as a routine routine procedure. 
And then, but the the vaginal examination examination one, and I want to highlight that for a second because, and I just want to send anyone a lot of love if they've had ex- experience with such advance, and especially around this, because the flow and effects are huge for your relationship and your and your um, sexual health moving forward. And you know, a lot of people come to me with that, and you know, they come to me with issues and uh, around postpartum sex and postpartum intimacy and postpartum relationships. And then when we get down to it, you know, the conversation unravels. It's the vaginal examination that's there, and it's that's what's underpinning everything. Well, the words that were used, which just you know blew me away when I when I was analyzing the data and, and I actually wrote down and I put that in the paper all the all the words that were used to describe vaginal examinations. And they are words that you would assume are related to a sexual assault. And this is how women are experiencing it. And of course there's going to be a flow-on effect. And women aren't going to realize that that impact has come down to what happened at that point. And when something becomes a routine procedure, then it's not really thought about in um, in really a caring caring manner or in a respectful manner because it has to be done. I mean, they stand around the board and go, who's doing this examination? And if you don't do it, I'll go in there. And I think that's just really sickening that if the midwife says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do it yet, the doctor says, well, I will go in there, as if it's a form of punishment not only to the woman but also to the midwife because she hadn't done it at that point. Like it's really, it's really icky and it's really um, – it's uncomfortable and I think we have to be brave to fit it to sit in that uncomfortable space and go what's really going on here like what is going on in the language what is going on in why we're even doing this there's no research to support this routine procedure so why are we doing it and actually now we know the damage that can cause vaginal examinations can be done in a very respectfully beautiful way like telling women they don't hurt well they will hurt if the vagina doesn't feel safe because the vagina is incredibly intuitive and intellectual and it will say no i don't want you to come in here and then it will hurt and that's the body's way of saying no and i think you know in our culture we expect the no to come from the mouth we expect the no to be said well the no saying no in birth when you uh you know and there is it there is a hierarchy in birth when you have a person in uniform standing over you and you're laying down in a bed that is a massive power imbalance so to be able to say no to that in any situation is hard to say no to that when you're trying to keep a baby inside of you alive and you're being threatened that it might die if you don't have this and your undies are off well, saying no is really hard and i think yeah. as healthcare providers we have to speak up for the no that comes from the body and that yeah. is pain and that is the legs closing and that is her moving up the bed and if you can't do that then you shouldn't be working in the birth space yeah. and women freeze don't they you know when you, when you're Ooh. in that moment oh, it's adrenaline fright yeah, you, right you freeze. exactly so then to be able to even say anything but there were even examples of when women did say something like stop please stop please stop now and nothing changing. Oh, I'll just, I'm nearly there. I'll just be a little bit longer. Oh, you've just had a contraction. I'm just going to keep my fingers here to see what happens, to see what your cervix, how your cervix behaves. It's not a naughty child. What do you think it's going to do? If you really don't know at that point of what you think a cervix will do during a contraction, go back and learn anatomy and physiology again. 
what do you think it's going to do? It's and the woman didn't give consent for doing during a contraction if you mm. said to a woman you know we, we want to do this vaginal examination you know we're going to do this you know we need you to lie down and by the way if you start contracting you know those really painful contractions you've been having where you can't sit still and you want to move around I'm going to keep my fingers in there so you can't move at all and keep keep feeling the baby's head is that okay by you like how many women would actually say oh you're not no I don't like that idea I don't want that to happen this highlights to that although a lot of midwives listening to this episode feel confident that they haven't contributed to being obstetric, a violent towards a woman. I'd say if you're listening to this episode, you have at least witnessed a woman being the victim of obstetric violence and assault in your presence. And if you're not the person, you've watched the person in your hospital who's the perpetrator, you've watched them do it. And there's a big level of trauma there too, which will I'm sure it's a whole episode on midwives burnout and exposure to trauma. This obstetric violence is perpetrated against women. And I'm sure if you are a midwife, you could think of the person in your unit who you've observed these kinds of things. And then we need to decide if us as midwives who may not be the perpetrators of obstetric violence, what are we going to do about stopping it in our units? Because if the woman hasn't in those units hasn't got the power to protect herself from obstetric violence and we aren't putting a stop to it, then where's where's our responsibility in stopping obstetric violence in our workplaces? I, I just want to say that's really hard. I just need to say yeah. it's really hard because I actually do, I hear from a lot of students as well and, and, and midwives and it, there is so much to this and it's probably not for this podcast because it is so big. Well, there is one thing I will touch on, though, that just remembering in your in your mind that the opposite, the flip side of that is respectful maternity care. So how can you encourage that? How can you reflect on your own practice to think, I really want, I guess, clinicians to have this moment of, you know, okay, I've got to go, I've I've been told to go and do this vaginal examination or it's up to four hours, I've got a time to go in and then pause. And think, how do I do this in a respectful way? Because if I don't, the opposite is obstetric violence. So how do I do that? What do I need to do? How do I give women choices? How, you know, thinking about those. And there's also some fantastic respectful maternity care training resources out there. The International Confederation of Midwives have created this amazing workshop that can be just downloaded and done in your workplace. So if this is actually an issue in your workplace, speak to your educator and say, why don't we do this? Really importantly, to make it interprofessionally, but not in a blame and shame type of way. You're not thinking, you know, I'm going to get that really cranky doctor to come along because I've seen him do this so that we can all have a go at him. No, this is not blaming and shaming. This is actually how do we change? How do we focus on respectful care, calling it respectful care training rather than how to stop you being obstetrically violent training? So just flip it over, work on the strengths based and think how you can then actually come together to say, well, we, we know this happens. Let's just park that and let's say, how do we become an accredited, respectfully, respectful maternity care workplace? Because that will have a flow on effect. Thanks, Hazel. Yeah, I like that. Let's not call it you're obstetrically violent. Let's call it let us help you. Let's all of us help each other become respectful maternity care providers. Yeah, because otherwise you just you're just going to close down doors. Sure. You, know, you, yeah. you know, I think people need to be held accountable 
That is true. Um, and there needs to be better access for women to be able to hold those accountable when that does happen. And that's why I think we need a national law. I mean, our human rights laws, in fact, there's only three states and territories in Australia that have human rights laws. We don't have any in New South Wales. So we, first of all, we need that. But actually, those human rights laws that do say everything has to be done with consent don't really hold up. We actually need to have the inclusion of obstetric violence in the women's and children's violence framework, which it wasn't. It wasn't included in the next 10-year plan. So we do need the legal side of it. We do need women to be able to have an avenue to go down. But I think rather than between professionals, from the professional point of view, just to be fighting and, and blaming people, that's where we need to work on a strengths-based and a kindness-based thing, which is let's become better at what we're doing. The law would help the know in the moment, though, wouldn't it? Because that's, oh I my think gosh, that's what Melanie's talking about. And so having that law allows allows us to stand up in that room and say, she just said no, so that's a no. Yeah. Um, and, if, and, if, and if fear of repercussions has increased our, our risk fear, our let's do this in case the baby dies because I could then get into trouble. Which it has. Yeah. So then what if we also had the law against such a violence that made you think, oh, hang on a minute, in that moment of pause, if I do do this, and this comes across as obstetric violent, I could then get into trouble and X, Y, Z, and it all goes on. Like, I don't know whether that just makes some brains explode because you've got too much fear going on. But I think it's we've seen the negative impacts on risk and intervention. So maybe this could have a positive impact of making people go, hang on a minute, did I actually just get consent? Did she just say no? Oh, I've really got to back off because she said no. Yeah. And there's a repercussion for this. It's almost like culturally we've created acceptance for this because the major belief is that women and babies die in birth. So therefore, anything that we do to prevent that is safe. And so women are more likely to feel psychologically unsafe than they are to have a physical um, issue. You know, the more likely to come away from that. Yeah, we know that, but culturally that's not what's believed. Culturally what is believed is that birth is scary, babies die, women die, and so you go through whatever you need to to survive. And so the whole that whole culture, that whole concept of birth really drives obstetric violence. It drives that everything that happens is okay because there is all this fear that bad things are going to happen and we're going to be negligent if we don't do these things, right? Because culturally we value doing things. Whereas if there is that law, it becomes this safety net of setting up this culture of actually psychological damage in birth is not okay, right? And we start to shift the concept of what actually is going on, which is the psychological damage is far greater than death for the mother and baby. Actually, the trauma we're seeing is not death, it's psychological trauma and the flow and effects of that. And so if we change the law, then we change the practice we and we change the cultural belief. So then if we could talk about so yes, obstetric violence is a thing. It's got terminology now. We could we could all identify it. If a woman feels like she's been assaulted in some way or violated and dehumanized in labor, then she's been the victim of obstetric violence. Is there current is there anything currently that women can do to avoid obstetric violence or being the victim of obstetric violence? So we do have some information from the best survey that we we are currently um, looking into. What it does show us is who are more susceptible to experiencing birth trauma and obstetric violence. And I think that's important. We need to go, you know, from all women can experience this, but who's more likely to experience this as well. But then we have looked at other things like the impact of models of care. And I know Amberly can jump in with her data, which is 
slightly, slightly different. Um, but we just looking at a very simple overlay, we haven't finished all of our stats on this, is we did look at the models of care impact on birth trauma and obstetric violence. And there were higher rates um, amongst standard fragmented care where you don't see, you don't have that continuity. And that could go up to um, in obstetric violence um, between 14 and 50%. So that really shoots up. And then it kind of comes down with constitutive care with a public midwife, constitutive care with a doctor, which is often a private obstetric care. And the lowest rates, and this is something that is exciting about the birth experience study, is because we have such large numbers, we had 8,804 women complete the whole survey, is that in the, in the different models of care, we can actually separate out private midwifery care from constitutive care with a midwife. So constitutive care with a midwife was the public MGP model. But then because we've had so many numbers, we could actually then bring private midwifery care into our breakdown of models. And so the low, lowest rates we've seen across those different models were in private midwifery care um, in both obstetric violence and birth trauma. So I think the continuity has a big impact. And I think the challenges that continuity care in a public model has is because you are still trying to provide this amazing model in a system that has such high rates and has policies and guidelines and expectations, and it's very difficult to be able to maybe be uh, an advocate as much as you would like to as a midwife. But we can look at you know models of care, and we can see that continuity makes a difference, puts it under the line of um, less than thirty percent or twenty eight percent that we have. But those lowest numbers were in private midwifery models. So yeah. if women are worried about being in that statistic. Of, of experiencing obstetric violence, then the model of, of care that they choose can impact upon their, the risk of being exposed to obstetric violence. So there was fewer women who had private midwives who experienced obstetric violence when you compared it to women who were just going through the regular hospital system. Well, all the continuity of care models had lower levels than that 28%. And then if we just took out the standard care, that was much higher. That was going up to like the 14, 50%. So it's, you know, we could get, you could go below that 28% if you were in a continuity of care model. And then there's slight adaptations, uh, slight differences across those continuity models. So the continuity matters. And I think from just a, you know, trying to think about why is that, you know, when you've got a relationship with someone, when you've spent, you know, all their pregnancy appointments, you know what their labor and birth is, which therefore means you know their past history, which is really important. You know the type of birth they want, you know the decisions they make, then you are less likely to treat them in a dehumanizing way. They're less likely to be feeling powerless because you've given them so much power and you're working walking alongside rather than being in a in a more hierarchical model. And it's probably harder to do things that make them feel violated when you really care and respect. For that person. So I think you actually, let's flip that again, you're more likely to provide respectful maternity care because you've developed that relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really, you know, it's that relationship-based care surrounded in respectful maternity care that brings in that protection. I think too, what I've noticed a lot is people that do have continuity of care, whether it be a private obst- obstetrician or a midwifery group practice, often their trauma is within the frag- fragmentation of them right? Because there still is aspects and Amberly, I'll jump to you in a second because I know your research was findings were similar. But what I often find is um, the trauma and the, well, the um, disrespectful maternity care that 
is often in on the postnatal ward with a midwife on shift that they've never met before, right? Because the, even though you've got that continuity or the midwife that works with your private obstetrician who you never met before looking after you during your induction, right? Because whilst you're still in a continuity model, there is still elements of, of that fragmented model that you're going to have to interact with. Whereas with private midwifery, that is less. Private midwifery is probably, unless you're being transferred to a hospital, your risk of having other people look after you is very low, especially if you're choosing a home birth because you never enter that system. So you never have that chance of having of being cared for by people you don't know at all, right? So yeah, even within yeah. the continuity models in a system, whether it be private obstetric or MGP, you are still being cared for by the by a fragmented model. Yeah, and we've got another, oh, my gosh, all these papers coming out of my head now. Um, we've got another paper that we're working on, and there are certainly some models that have more limitations than strengths, and there are some models that have the opposite, much more strengths and hardly any limitations. But in the continuity models, a limitation that comes up is not having your actual quantity of care provider there. Yeah, so just having someone, um, we've got one, <laughs> I don't know if, if this will be what, what it's called in the end as a category, but it's called Hello Push. Like it's like, I've just met you, now, now have your baby. Uh, even though they've had a continuity all that time and then not being able to have that during labour and birth. And that can that can happen in all the continuity of care models. It can happen in private midwifery as well. And, and I think with private midwifery, one of the, downsides or limitations can be if you don't actually get on with that person you know you've you've committed to that person maybe you've got a lack of a lack of availability of other midwives in the area or maybe no other midwives in the area and then there's a personality thing because relationship-based care is about relationships and we don't all get on with everyone and we're all different so it's hard to know how that relationship's going to go so that can be a limitation to um a private midwifery but we can also see all these amazing benefits that come out of it. So having that continuity and then having it broken, yes, that certainly makes it as a uh, an opening, I think, for for disrespectful care. Is that similar to what you found, Amberly, when you were looking? Uh, yeah, si- very similar results. But remember, I also didn't look at obstetric violence. So this was purely women telling me that, yes, I felt traumatised in my birth experience. And so when I broke it down and looked at the models of care, Public hospitals had the highest at 40% and it trekked down from then private hospital, MGP, and then continuity of care by midwife, which was at 20%. And I only had 274 women who met the criteria for my study that I included as well. So I think that that's worth noting. But not dissimilar then to what Hazel Mm. found in terms of the decrease when you move from fragmented care into closer towards a continuity of care and then MGP care and midwifery continuity of care seems to present women with the best opportunity to avoid obstetric violence, even in the smaller version of the study that you did. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, trauma because Amberly didn't look at obstetric violence. It was specifically so it was just if trauma. they felt traumatized. Okay. So that yeah. and that could mean anything. Maybe some of them did come from experiences of obstetric okay. violence. I just wouldn't exactly know that. Sure. Yeah. And thanks for clarifying it. From your study, Emily, you asked people whether they wanted a birth de- birth debrief. Is that correct? Yes, I did. And Can you elaborate on that for us and tell us well, what you found? I was really curious about people's birth debriefing experiences because when I looked at the results with PTSD, you know, okay, they've deemed them ineffective. 
But yet when you chat to women, just anecdotally, women want to share their experiences. They want to talk about their stories, even if they say they felt traumatized. And so I was like, okay, let's break this down then. Is birth debriefing helpful for this population, for this one in three who described their birth as traumatic? And what I found really interesting was that only 35% of this population in my study knew that debriefing was actually an option. So already that's a limitation in giving women an opportunity to create a coherent birth narrative. Like that's essentially what a lot of these women wanted at the end of the day. Because when I asked, did you want to share your birth story with a professional? Over 80% had said yes. So majority of women in this study wanted to share their experiences, but a lot of them didn't even know that that was an opportunity. And this highlights, I was going to ask if we could chat through the, so now what happens? How do we, so you've felt trauma from your birth, whether it was a result of obstetric violence or your care provider or something else that happened. For women who have experienced birth trauma, firstly, healing is possible. We know that you can heal from birth trauma because some women think, well, that's it. Now I'm traumatized and this is going to hang on forever. We can heal from birth trauma. And Amberly, what you're saying is one way that that can happen is woman-led debriefing. Mm-hmm. So what what can you talk us through what is women led? Yeah, well, birth debriefing. I cared about then who was doing the birth debriefs. So I was really critical of that in the PTSD studies because I thought, well, if you're just going back to a hospital that maybe influenced your trauma or was the cause of your trauma, and then you're being debriefed by a midwife who may also be traumatized working in that system. How effective is the birth debrief going to be? So I had all of these questions. And so I wanted to sort of unpack that in my particular study. So when I asked the women who did your birth debrief and I gave them um, examples, but allowed them to write in a text box who, who did their birth debrief. And I excluded women who said people like partners and things like that, because while you are able to talk about your birth with your partner, I wanted to look at it from a professional perspective, I guess, with birth debriefing. So. A, a lot of women said it was with a midwife that they did not know. And then there were quite a few who said that they did have it by their private midwife or a therapist or a doula. And what I found was emotional validation was through the roof with people who, so facilitators who debriefed these women who were out of hospital. So I I found that really interesting. Women going back to the hospitals to have these birth debriefs, they were almost ineffective, even in my study of the one in three women who described their birth as traumatic. So I was like, we really need to be thinking about how we debrief. And the person who is debriefing, they need to also consider their expertise. Just because you're a midwife does not mean you have the skills to do a birth debrief. You need to upskill in order to be able to provide that service. And so I think that that was something really important that came out of my study. Can I just it's ask, really, sorry, who who was who did they identify as the out of hospital? So doulas, therapists, private midwives in that um, continuum of private midwifery care, and or yeah, therapists, psychologists, yeah, counselors. Yeah, um, I you know in all in the birthday briefs that I offer, what I. of the time, if a person has had a formal debrief with the hospital, it has added to the trauma because often 
those debriefs are we're not at fault and it what yes. people often people often walk away come from those debriefs is my body's to blame my baby's to blame because it just often feels like those debrief sessions are not our fault you can't sue us kind of sessions or yeah. sorry that happened you still can't sue us kind of sessions and so I 100% of the time I have had I would say people come and say I had one and now I feel this about it um yeah. the other thing I would argue is the person holding space for you to tell your birth story and that includes pregnancy and postpartum but I argue 100% that the person that holds space for you shouldn't be involved in your care because if they are, you don't actually get to tell your story in full because you often filter it to please the person listening. Whereas when you, you know, to be able to fully heal, you need to be able to fully speak and feel, you know, we always say you've got to name it to tame it, you've got to feel it to heal it. You've really got to feel and often you will have reservations or filters or um you know put on if that person is still there and so the challenge that that brings though doesn't it is then how do you then so say that you could have a debriefing training for midwives to be able to upskill or doctors to upskill then how do you then bring that to be available to all women and not to the only women that can then pay for that service if they're publicly funded thanks government and then that needs to be put into a community place rather than in yeah. the hospital. So with our GPs or with our with yeah. our community health services. I mean, and, we've got that's, cope.org that's now, right? So there's the app, cope.org. Why can't we have a government funded? If this is one in three in the we've got one in three women leaking urine, we've got you know over 70% of women in their lifetime experiencing prolapse. We've got one in three having birth trauma. If we really cared about family health, if we really cared about the health of individuals in Australia, we would care about mothers first and foremost because you cannot care for the family unit unless you care for the mother first. This is a human health issue. This is a public health issue. This affects everyone. It doesn't just affect people birthing. It affects everyone. And so if we want to get real about this, if we really want to address this issue, how many stats what what does the statistic need to be for this to be publicly funded? Because it's necessary, right? Think your studies prove that. I mean, it, it, we shouldn't have to have studies that prove that this is needed, but we do. We've got that now. So next step, let's have it publicly funded. Mm-hmm. This really yeah. comes back to when, for me, midwifery shouldn't be just in a hospital in that silo of we do everything here and we don't we don't connect with the with community. You know, midwifery was was all and and should be this community profession. People should know should know the midwife, should be able to have a relationship with the midwife, to know that the midwife is part of a community, not someone working in a hospital. And we've got that more with private midwifery, but not enough. We're actually there's a whole yeah, and they have to pay for it. That midwifery has this whole area of community health. That is not really used, and obviously they would need upskilling Amberly to be able to do um, birth debriefing well um, and understand it. But I just think we we put them all in a in a big building and a hospital that then are the places where women come out traumatized, and we don't we don't recognize that midwives have always been part of communities. Mm. And 
What else? Sorry, go ahead, Amber. I was just going to say the interesting thing, though, about birth fever. So I always love to look at the history of where something came from because that shapes where it is today. And I know all three of you know that that is so important. So I looked at the history of birth debriefing and it originally was set up in hospitals to cover the hospital. So like you were saying before about women having these debriefs and going away thinking, well, that was all of my fault. Um, And that's because that's the way that they were originally designed. And so moving away from that traditional clinical setting of a birth debriefing is super important because of its history. So they stemmed from obstetric violence. (laughs) <laughs> which which still isn't written into the law. Interesting. How how refreshingly unique for the system. Good. So we know for women who have experienced birth trauma that uh, that I I think perhaps birth debrief could be a starting point to healing. Would starting that- point. Absolutely. Starting I think point. I think it's a that is a really that's actually a really good point because what I have seen anecdotally when women have debriefed in a non-traditional sense, I have seen it almost gives them access to that door of the journey of healing. It's like they're propelled forward in that healing process. And it's it's where they have those light bulb moments, right? It's where they understand fully, this wasn't my fault. You know, I'm not alone. I'm all of those things that matter when you're talking about birth trauma and that's just what I've seen on an anecdotal level. Like this is not something I looked at further in research, but it was just something that I really noticed. I was like, wow, after a woman shares her story, not only just shares her story, but has a debrief with a professional, how much lighter that they feel in that in those steps, but then they continue to step forward in healing. Mm. What happens next? After you have an effective birth debrief with a healthcare provider or somebody who has the skill to receive that, and, and facilitate a birth debrief. What other steps can women take to facilitate their healing so that they don't look back on their birth with, with feelings of trauma? I will always say when it comes to trauma, I am very pro-therapy. So if you do feel like there are things there that you want to unpack, finding somebody who has the skill set to walk you through that trauma, and because that, that, that trauma can also stem from previous experiences. So sexual abuse could be coming up, you know, like there, there are so many things that impact our experiences and how, and our perceptions of trauma. So I would say that the next step would be receiving some sort of psychological support because they can give you those answers on how to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm also uh, reminded of, there's some research papers by two researchers, uh, Jill Thompson and Sue Down in the UK and they talk about the power of the next birth. Not that women should just keep having babies in order to heal from the trauma of their first birth, but particularly for me as a private midwife, a lot of my clients come looking for a better and healing experience from what they previously experienced because they know what they experienced last time was traumatic and they want to change the story for this birth. But what Sue and Jill found is that you actually can change the, so one of their papers was called Changing the Future to Change the Past. And they talk about the hero's tale of childbirth in another one of their papers and that women actually report that it is entirely possible if you have an amazingly uh, positively transformative birth with your next birth after a traumatic birth, 
it can heal the damage and the trauma from your previous birth. That birth is that powerful. And I always say to women, birth is always transformative. You will always be transformed by your birth. But by things that occur or people who are with you and how you feel, it will either be a positive or negative transformation. So if your birth is then a a positively transformative birth experience, it can actually fill the gaps and heal the wounds from a previously negative birth. So for women, yeah, who come to me kind of planning their next birth, you know, I sort of think, wow, okay, this is, this. it's entirely possible that this could be a healing event. I don't think it's a misplaced hope for women to think that a positive birth could heal what happened in their last birth. It's absolutely you definitely, not, yeah, it's, it's absolutely um, achievable I mean that's the basis of all the work I did at my PhD on birth after cesarean was how can you get a better birth and go through that process and that's why the first part of my book has that whole stuff about birth trauma because you've got to go back and and recognize that to then be able to move on and share it It really does make a big impact and I also think that next birth that next pregnancy is where a lot of the learning comes from that maybe women didn't really, well, they look back and they go, I wish I'd known that. I wish I'd learned that from my first birth. I wish I'd done this class. I wish I had had that person supporting me. And that's invested then into that into that next birth. And this definitely can come with so much healing. And I found that. I found that after my my traumatic birthing experience. And even though my VBAC was fraught with drama um, and, and uh you know, certainly aspects of obstetric violence during that time, the fact that I had done that and I'd got the birth that I that, that I had wanted and I felt that I had that control, I could just feel it was almost like melting away mm. the previous experience and the previous fears in the, in that moment of having a redemptive, another one that that Jill Thompson talks about is that redemptive birth, like having that redemptive birth had such an impact and then what happens is that it causes this fire in women's bellies of going actually I could I had a better birth therefore I want more women to do this and that's what led me on my on my journey that you go hang on more women can also have have this better experience yeah I just want to add in here because you know Mel and I both kind of say the whole thing around birth being transformative and you know, you Mel, you said that it could be positive or negative. There's two things here. Last week, in last week's episode, we talked about how birth can be healing for attachment wounds that have been there from previous birth. And I mostly see in the work that I do, it's it's attachment wounds that come up in birth. But if the birth has been negative, the thing I love most about birth trauma is that when you start to work with it and you start to heal, it enables that transformation to be completed into a positive one. Um, And so the transformation doesn't end with the birth. And sometimes that negative experience is the initiator or the starter of doing this work to better understand ourselves and to heal from not just the birth but previous trauma as well and it can be the catalyst that's the word I wanted to use the catalyst to actually heal so if you're sitting here listening to this going well I'm not going to have enough another baby so I'm stuffed no you're not you can heal 
always you can heal and that transformation and and this is I love you may not at birth have have gotten that power you may not have felt powerful and positive and euphoric with your birth but you can still get that from your birth later on through the power of healing from it and and I do I I love birth trauma in that aspect because we whilst we don't get it in the moment we get it later and if anything it often is more powerful because we've done that work and so yeah I would say one birthday brief is never enough you are it's a journey really because once you start to, you know, use the term that Marion Rose often uses, or the analogy is that, you know, it's like you're a ball of wool and then we like pick it a piece. And then when you start to unpick your birth, that, that string gets longer and longer. And then if you're willing to, you will keep unraveling. And that process is, is so freeing and so beautiful and so able to happen. Well, I actually was just thinking of my own experiences because in my first birth was, I would describe as traumatic. It was a long, very long labor, a forcep delivery, which, re- which resulted in a 3B tear. And I remember sitting there shocked and confused and, you know, being wheeled out of recovery back to my husband and baby and just thinking, what the heck just happened? Like, I know that that's not birth and, and I don't understand what went wrong and blamed myself for a lot of it. And then when I had my second baby, I had, I still had that same 3B tear but it was a it was a physiological birth, so that she was coming hard and fast in under three hours. You know, barely made it to the hospital. Wish I never went anyway. But <laughs> like, I just I was so like, even though the result was the same, and I had that severe tearing that second time, it was still healing because I had a physiological birth. I did it on my own. I didn't have people's hands in my vaginas, and I didn't have people towering over me, and I was you know, positioning myself myself in, in like listening to my instincts, you know, and, and following my body. And that process was healing for me. And I'm not, I think it's important as well. Like we, I always say like, we can't put everybody in the same category. So while that was my experience, there will be women who have a similar experience and still feel traumatized. So going back to the individual is what is so critical here and I, I honestly, I, I couldn't push that enough because like like with trauma, what works for somebody isn't going to work for the other. And I think that if we consider women and their own experiences, their own psychological safety, what they want, and that's why I say woman-led, because if we're coming from that perspective, it's not about our agendas, it's about what they want. Yes. And I think too, like this is really highlights that drama in the birth space doesn't equal trauma and also the outcome isn't what dictates how women are going to feel about their birth. I think it's right what you say, Hazel. It's not about, or it's not always about the events and what happened at the end. So we've got, okay, so the possibility of healing comes from potentially a second birth, the starting point of a debrief, the journey with another healthcare provider, as you're saying, Amberly, choosing someone who can keep walking you through the healing journey. Do we have any other top tips? Healing from birth trauma. Well, I think a big thing is usually when people start to share their journey, people want to then share theirs. So I actually find that really invalidating. So, uh, and that's coming from a personal place because I remember after my firstborn being like, well, this happened. And I was ready to talk about my birth immediately because I was like, I need answers now. Like, what just happened? And as I would share my story, they would cut me off and then they would tell me theirs. And I'd just be like, oh, okay. I'm not important and maybe this is just birth and maybe it's I'm the problem. And so I think if so, if a friend in that sense is opening up to you, 
you need to shut up and listen first and foremost. You need That's to shut up and listen. That's a big cultural thing, right, though? Because oh, it is. Culturally, and we do the, and this is so, I do workshops around this. This is what Lael and I do a lot. And it, we do, I do a lot about this in my coaching we listen to fix. We listen to fix. We don't listen to hear. And so we run this workshop where we get you to sit there and you have to be quiet for five minutes and you're not allowed to talk. And the other person has to talk for five minutes. And then we switch and then we talk about it. And everyone says the same things. They feel like they're not validating or they're not listening or they're not helping the other person if they don't go, oh yeah, that happened to me too. Or I totally get where you're coming from, or you could do this. And we do this from when a child is born, right? So we listen to fix by shushing, patting, look at the pretty colors, have a dummy, have a boob. It'll be okay. Don't cry. You're all right. And so we get conditioned not to feel. And we have a very we have very big feelings. We are very uncomfortable in our culture with listening to hear. We're very uncomfortable with people experiencing emotions because most of us are conditioned that emotions are bad, bad, like bad emotions. There's bad emotions, there's good emotions. So if someone's sad or angry or frustrated, we either shut them down or we try and fix. So our partners do it with us all the time and we hate it, right? And especially, you know, men, because that is very much in, in their ancestral line to fix and to help. And so this is a big cultural issue. And often a lot of us make it mean, well, you don't care about me because you haven't heard me. What's actually happening is they are caring about you. They're just doing what they've been conditioned to do, which is to fix. So I think this is this goes with birthday briefing. It goes with anything. It goes as and the number one rule to be a good human being, shut your mouth. But we don't we don't um, value that in our culture. We don't value, we're very uncomfortable with silence. But that's this, this is deeply rooted in who we are as human beings in Western society, and that is we're trying to fix. So I just want to say if your friends do that, if they listen to fix and they want to share their experiences, it's not because they don't care about you. Often that's what we make it mean, and often it's because we've never actually been listened to properly. Yeah. Like we were never listened to by our parents. We were never listened to by our partners. And I think so often we take our birth experiences out there because we don't know that there's birth defrain or we can't afford it or we can't access it because no one will look after our child. And so we need it. And so we turn to friends and partners and then they don't listen to hear. And then that often makes those feelings bigger because it validates those themes, those thought processes that we often are still holding on to from birth you know, I think we can expect a lot of our community, but our community has lost a lot of skill. Absolutely. And so taking it to a professional, especially if it's big, is, is I, I'm going to say, I think the most important thing. Mm-hmm. But if you can, as a human being, learn to listen to hear. And I cut you off there. And we're like, no, you're fine. That was totally <laughs> relevant. <laughs> I also find like when you do become good at listening, the first thing that you often offer is compassion because you're, like you were saying, you're not sitting there replying throughout the story and throwing in random reactive thoughts. You're actually sitting there processing at the same time. So your response when the time is right is often through compassion. And we deeply underestimate how powerful compassion is it is a superpower that that can be self-compassion or offering compassion to somebody else 
And oftentimes you will see people in the therapeutic space in birth debriefing, for example, that is something that they use throughout all of it. And you could even, you know, throw that over into midwifery as well. Often the good midwives that everybody loves and they come back to are the compassionate midwives. So compassion everywhere. I'd love it. And if I can offer a recommendation, Compassionomics, it's a book with like just data about compassion in healthcare specifically. And it's just brilliant. It is one of the best books I've ever read. Um, And I'm going to throw this in here now. If you're listening to this as a birth worker and you're thinking, I want to offer birth debriefs, I want to get better at it. I want to be able to hold that space for the people in my care or not in my care. Um, Lael Stone and I, breaking news, will be offering birth debrief training starting uh, July this year. It'll be face-to-face because compassion and learning happens best face-to-face. We'll be in Melbourne. We'll be running that this year and it's something we hope to roll out every year because there is not enough people working in this space and I'm very passionate. I mean, I'm booked out four months in advance, which goes to show there is a huge need and I need more people doing the work that I'm doing so that more people are able to heal. Amazing. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. We, we learnt from Hazel on the best study about obstetric violence and that led very nicely into the umbrella situation where we have here in Australia of birth trauma and the stats on that are roughly one in three women experience birth trauma and some of that is a result of obstetric violence. Some of that is a result of what happened in their birth. And the majority of it is about women's interactions with their healthcare providers. And so we we know that now. We also know there's a massive lag in laws and regulation around definitions of and management of and repercussions of obstetric violence uh, for perpetrators. But also then, I guess, a huge gap in what women who've experienced obstetric violence and or birth trauma, where do we go? Where do women go after that? So we've learned from you guys, from Amberly too, with with your particular research that a great starting point and a huge gap is for women to access birth debrief opportunities with professionals and B, who does birth debriefing all the time, is offering uh, training for, is it for healthcare providers, Bernie, or is it yeah. yeah, it's um it'll be for birth workers. So people working in the birth space, obstetricians, yeah. midwives, doulas, people that work in the birth space that really want to, psychologists who want to undertake it to specifically understand birth. And then I just do want to do a plug, um, as Hazel said, to there's Gidget and Panda as well, which are fantastic resources um and free. Do you want to just, and then there's cope.org, which is um, also an app that can put you in touch with psychologists. So, um, and I do want to highlight here that um, birth trauma is not just for people who give birth, it's for people present in the room. So partners, mothers, other support people, but also our colleagues, midwives and obstetricians. And and I just really can't highlight how important that is with, either with your colleagues that you get together and have a group that really talks through um, this kind of stuff. Because this is really, when you get together with your colleagues and you start talking about it, that's what's going to give you the passion to say no and stop obstetric violence and to be the creators of change that, you know, start to um, pioneer the respectful care, maternity care courses in your hospital and things like that. So um, if you're listening to this, you are, if, if you feel like you're experiencing trauma or you've had an experience 
birth, you know, we've all had as midwives. I think all of us just talking about it, you know, you could come up with five or six births where you're like, yeah, I'm still holding trauma from that. It's really important we work through our stuff because it does impact our, our practice. It does, it can change our practice dramatically. And I think it's really important to work through. Mm, totally. So I think we've got a lot of tips for not only healthcare providers, where if you can do nothing else, aim to provide respectful maternity care. And by providing respectful maternity care, you are much less likely to be a perpetrator of obstetric violence. And then if you are the victim of obstetric violence, an amazing starting point would be a birth debrief with somebody who will listen. And then from there starts your birthing journey. It's not the, the your healing journey. It's not the end of the journey. Okay, so that is our episode that covered obstetric violence, birth trauma, healing from birth trauma. We've been with Hazel Keedle and Amber Lee. Underneath this podcast, you'll see in the show notes, there's a full list of links of where you can find uh, Amber Lee. Also, everyone's Instagram handles. I will send out uh, to anyone on the mailing list. And by the way, there's always a question from people is, if I've signed up to the mailing list now, do I get access to all the research from previous episodes? Yes, you do. You get access to everything. It's this big master Google folder and it's got all the previous episodes of uh, resources. So if you go to www.melaniethemidwife.com and go on the front page there, sign up to the mailing list, you will get access to the resources. And in there, I'll have Hazel's research and Amber Lee's research and any information that we've shared today. If you yourself are struggling with mental illness, post, uh, post-traumatic stress, birth trauma from as a result of what happened to you in birth, there's a list of resources under this podcast as well for you to access. And we will see you in the next episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs>